0: Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Once you're on that email list, you're going to get emails from me. Maybe three, four, five days a week. There are going to be links often to the podcast or other things that I'm doing. You're going to get great coupons out of that. And, of course, if you go to McClanahan Academy, you can support the show that way. You can give me an email address there, and I'll give you a free class, 10 Myths of American History, and you're going to get great deals on McClanahan Academy courses. That's a win-win because... You can purchase that great content. You keep this podcast free of charge, and you get great stuff out of it. So you've heard about that already. Christmas is coming up. McClanahan Academy classes are never out of stock, and they're always great gifts. You can also click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. Donate monthly to the show. Or you can get a book plate if you want. Autograph on one of my books. You can purchase one of my books wherever books are sold online. That, those make great gifts. Click on the shop tab at com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. All kinds of ways to support the show. But as always, share the podcast around on social media. Rate it where you get your podcast. Review it and subscribe to it. Do everything you can to get people thinking locally and acting locally. All right. I'm going to talk about this piece that came out. Well, it's been about a year now. And... It's uh, written by Helen Andrews, who is the managing editor at American Conservative Magazine. It was published in the Claremont Review of Books. So, see, I'm not always going to be hard on the Straussians. The Claremont Review of Books actually has worthwhile essays here and there. But This is a book review that she wrote about uh, a book entitled The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s. And it's um, it's an interesting book. Now... Um, This is Christopher Caldwell's book, and I want to talk about this because this idea of two constitutions is not something new, right? It's not something new at all. And this review was published before Helen Andrews published her book, Boomers, The Men and Women Who Promised Freedom and Delivered Disaster. I want to get into this, right? This is a very good review. In 2012, uh, Clyde Wilson and I wrote a book entitled Forgotten Conservatives in American History. And I wrote an essay in that book on Sam Irvin of North Carolina. And the idea of that particular uh, essay was to rehabilitate Sam Irvin's reputation. Now, other people have written about Sam Irvin, too. And there was a biography that came out about Sam Irvin, I think that year or the year before. And Sam Irvin, I think the title was The Last of the Founders or something like that. But Sam Irvin wrote his own autobiography in the 1980s. It's very good. But essentially what Caldwell's book does is frame our current problems within the context of the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1968. And he's saying, look, these laws created an entirely new constitution you could argue that you could also go back to, <laughs> to long before that where we've had laws that have created an entirely new constitution but essentially we have two constitutions in america we have an unwritten constitution and we have a written constitution now what caldwell would say and what what uh, miss andrews gets into here with this particular essay is that the legislation created out of that out of those laws is what's created this, unri- this this new constitution. So it is kind of written, but it's written through legislation rather than rather than uh, the, a, a written constitution itself. So let me get into this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna refer back to Sam Irvin and some other things in a minute. She says during a Democratic town hall event hosted by the Human Rights Campaign in CNN on October 10, thousand nineteen, then candidate Beto O'Rourke proposed revoking the tax-exempt status of churches and religious organizations that oppose gay marriage. There can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break, he intoned, for anyone or any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. Rourke's abuse of the term civil rights, his pandering attempt to borrow the moral grandeur of 1964 in order to abrogate the First Amendment, is no longer an, anom- an anomaly. Excuse me. On the contrary, as Christopher Caldwell has ably shown in the Age of Entitlement, his remark is a perfect example of what civil rights has come to mean. Now, another thing I'll I'll point to, James Byard of Delaware in uh, the 1860s said, look, I support civil rights for whatever that means, but I don't support what's happening here. You see, this distortion of the term civil rights has been going on for a long time. And the problem with it, as Andrews points out, and I think as Caldwell points out, is that once you open this Pandora's box, there's no closing it. What does it actually mean is going to be open to interpretation? One of the most astute observers of contemporary politics, Caldwell, argues that the United States now has two constitutions. The first one is on the books. The second arose in the 1960s and replaced the old liberties with, with new incompatible ones based on group identities. Much of what we have called polarization or incivility in recent years is something more grave, he writes. It is a disagreement over which of the two constitutions shall prevail. More bracing still, he puts the blame for the crisis on the most sacred totem in American politics, our civil rights legislation. You could take it back before that. You could take it back to the 1860s. You could take it essentially to Lincolnian nationalism. That really is the problem. Because in that, the righteous cause myth, that creates this entire thing. The civil rights legislation is an outgrowth of that. The righteous cause myth. What the opponents of that legislation were saying in the 1950s and 60s has all come to pass. Look, if you pass this stuff, there's no slowing down the federal government. And we're going to create an environment where we have the modern woke political left. Caldwell for many years, a columnist for the Financial Times and senior editor of the Weekly Standard, and now a contributing editor of the CRB, is no stranger to untouchable subjects. His previous book, Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, was about the wave of immigrants from the Third World that was roiling the continent, even in those days before the refugee crisis. It was a prescient book, especially his prediction that ordinary Europeans would not tolerate forever the, thickest of, the thicket of euphemisms and taboos that made an advanced degree in sociology, as he put it, a prerequisite for expressing the slightest worry about the way one's country is going. Caldwell was able to cut through that thicket partly because he is he is, erudite with a dry wit and an eye for the telling detail, but it also helped that he was an outsider. Now he is turning, turning on his own country's taboos and the courage behind his frankness is greater. There were times in the history of Ireland during the agitations of the 19th century when it was impossible to get a jury conviction against any nationalist even for cold-blooded murder because Irish jurors, either sympathized with the cause or else feared that anyone who voted to convict would be killed next. Britain, therefore, had to make certain crimes subject to trial by magistrate, using state of emergency laws known as the Corrosion Acts, renewed annually by Parliament. Imagine if instead of passing annual Corrosion Acts, Parliament had permanently abolished the right to trial by jury, not just for political crimes, but for every crime, and not just in Ireland, but in the whole United Kingdom. This is akin to what Congress did when it passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I mean, that is saying this stuff. I I do admire Caldwell for doing this, because essentially what he's done is said, look, I'm just going to throw all caution in the wind, and I'm going to say the Civil Rights Acts were a disaster. They were a disaster for liberty. They're a disaster for limited government. They're a disaster for the Constitution. They're a disaster. And this is not to say that what they were attempting uh, attempting to do was necessarily wrong, to say that we shouldn't have first two, two classes of citizens in America, that everyone, there should be no segregation in public accommodations. It was always the private part that really roiled uh, people up. They, they were upset about that because now you're saying there's no private property anymore. But to say that you can't have... Uh, you have to have segregation in your courthouses and your schools and things like that. I mean, look, that the attempt there was to say we can't, we can't have two classes of citizens in America. But what's happened in the way the laws were written, and this is what the opponents were pointing out, these were going to be a disaster. Just as assuming that two parallel lines can meet overturns the whole of geometry, eliminating freedom of association from the U.S. Constitution changed everything. Caldwell writes, the Civil Rights Act passed under Lyndon Johnson was meant to address an emergency situation that most Americans, even most white Americans, recognize as a national disgrace. Over the following decades, those emergency measures would be revealed as a permanent apparatus, combining surveillance by volunteers, litigation by lawyers, and enforcement by bureaucrats. Civil rights offered new grounds for overruling and overriding legislatures and voters on any question that could be cast as a matter of discrimination. That was coming to mean all questions. And this is what opponents of the legislation said it would do. You see, what Caldwell has done in many ways is essentially bring back these arguments that people like Sam Irvin and others made and put them forward again and say, look, they were right. They were right. What Sam Irvin and others had said. They were right. And I go back to Forgotten Conservatives because, I mean, it's, it's a good book, and if you haven't gotten it, you should. This is what Sam Urban had to say. And this is what I wrote back in 2012. What many Americans viewed as moral justice, Urban saw as an affront to constitutional government and a slippery slope to tyranny and the destruction of the Union of the Founders. As a member of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Constitutional Rights, Irvin was in unique position to fillet any civil rights bill that came before the Senate. Between 1957 and 1972, there were dozens. Irvin Irvin labeled each one unconstitutional, tyrannical, or unnecessary. And while he could not kill most, he succeeded in watering down or delaying most of them. In every case, the Constitution was his shield and history his sword. Irvin first went on the offensive in 1957. President Dwight Eisenhower insisted on the civil rights legislation package and put pressure on Congress to to act. Irvin called the proposed 1957 Civil Rights Acts utterly repugnant to the American constitutional and legal systems. In a long indictment of the bill, Irvin explained that the American tradition was built on legal safeguards and that the founding generation, both during the American War for Independence and afterwards, steadfastly determined to ensure that Americans would never face the same type of tyrannical government they suffered under in the, in the 1760s and 1770s. In Irvin's mind, the most egregious affront to civil liberty was the denial of trial by jury. This is what this is what Caldwell has said happened. This is what Irvin was saying in 1957 was going to happen. The 1957 Civil Rights Bill removed the essential protection from, America, from the American people, as he noted in his autobiography. Quote, now this is from Irvin. They, the founders, knew that tranquility was not to be always anticipated in a republic, that strife would rise between classes and sections, and even civil war might come, and that in such time, judges themselves might not be safely trusted in criminal cases, especially in prosecutions for political offenses, where the whole power of the executive is arrayed against the accused party. They knew that what was done in the past might be attempted in the future, and that troublous times would arise, when rulers and people would become restive under restraint and seek by sharp and decisive methods to accomplish ends deemed just and proper, and that the principles of constitutional liberty would be in peril unless established by irrepealable law. Ultimately, Irving contended that every civil rights bill that crosses his desk violated the principles of American government, be it the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, or the Equal Employment Opportunities Act of 1972. By creating federal departments and agencies with the power to act as lawmaker, prosecutor, jury, and judge in the same office or agency, these laws destroyed the separation of legislative, executive, and judicial powers the founders considered essential to good government. Not only were these regulatory agencies unconstitutional, they were uh, against fair due process and fair play. And with the Supreme Court acting in concert with the legislative branch in declaring these laws constitutional, Irvin believed there was no hope for liberty or free government in America. And then he said this, the proponents of current civil rights legislation, many of them undoubted men of goodwill, would in attempt to meet a genuine problem concerning the inflamed nature between the races in this country, trounce upon an even more pressing need, the need to preserve limited constitutional government in an age of mass bureaucracy and centralization. Now, that's what Irvin had to say. And this is what, Caldwell and Andrews have to say. If you doubt the infinite adaptability of civil rights to any subject under the sun, consider the multifarious uses to which it has been put. Last year, the University of Missouri, Kansas City, took down student art supporting the Hong Kong protests after pro-Beijing Chinese students complained it was discriminatory hate speech. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that a New York ban on euthanasia Vitally, the civil rights of patients who wanted to be euthanized by treating them differently than similarly situated patients who could arrange to die simply by refusing further treatment. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed. There are pavilion-sized homeless encampments on the streets of Los Angeles. Employers can hire legal immigrants with relative impunity. Gay marriage is the law of the land, all because of civil rights law directly or indirectly. This metastasis was contrary to the explicit assurances of the original sponsors of the 1964 law. But remember what Urban said in 1957. Senator Hubert Humphrey famously promised to eat the paper on which the bill was printed if it were found to require anything as ambitious as racial preferences in hiring. He also promised that it would create only about 400 permanent new federal jobs. Within 10 years, the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division alone had more than twice that number. The bill does not permit the federal government to interfere with the day to day operations of business, promised Representative William McCulloch of Ohio, ranking Republican on the House Judiciary Committee. It did not tell a bank to whom it may or may not make a loan or a landlord to whom he must sell, rent, lease, or otherwise use his real estate. Of course, the law in its 1968 successor did do all of that and more. One of Caldwell's most provocative arguments is that his rejection his rejection of the belief common among conservatives that there is a good civil rights law buried beneath the quotas and dictates and that once the country came to its senses and rejected this optional radical regime, it could have the good civil rights regime back. Even in its original incarnation, civil rights laws required employers to collect extensive demographic data on their workers, institute grievance procedures and performance reviews, hire human resources directors to enforce the new rules. Caldwell aptly compares them to 20th century commissars and, most far-reaching of all, imposed strict censorship on what their employers were allowed to say. Political correctness says Caldwell is simply the cultural effect of the basic enforcement powers of civil rights law. And this is exactly right. I think that if you go back to the middle of the 20th century and the expansion of federal power in the middle of the 20th century, and what you see in predominantly Southerners who are opposing this stuff, who are now painted as all racist. Irvin is castigated as being a racist. Now, he was also the hero of the left when he took down Richard Nixon. Essentially, Irvin took him down. But when he was opposing civil rights legislation, he's awful. But he's saying the same thing. We don't want expansion of federal power in ways that Americans don't want. Uh, Then he says, he cites the Los Angeles uh, Dodgers general manager, Al Campanis, who was fired in 1987 by the team he had worked for since 1943 after an interview in which Ted Koppel asked him about the lack of black executives in Major League Baseball. Campanis gave a thoughtful answer, pointing out that team managers don't get paid very much and well-known black players might prefer other opportunities. He then got flustered when Koppel called his answer baloney and garbage and offered a rambling second answer that ended with him speculating that maybe black men were poor swimmers because they don't have the buoyancy. Today, we attribute outrage storms to social media, but as Caldwell points out, organizations like the Dodgers don't cave just because they're afraid of bad publicity. They do it because they're afraid of lawsuits. Comments like campaignuses are not actionable in themselves can serve in an anti-discrimination case as evidence of a hostile work environment or a covert bias. Comments need not even be made in the workplace. In a 1987 suit brought by a female female English professor claiming Boston University had wrongly denied her tenure because of her sex, her case partly rested on a speech given years earlier by the university president in which he made standard socially conservative points about working women and child rearing. The district court ruled that BU had indeed acted out of sexism and ordered the school to give the woman tenure plus $215,000. So it's really the threat of this extra, I mean, it is legal, but this extra constitutional thing, the judge-jury executioner that Irvin was talking about that's created this entire environment. It's the court system. And the court system is the way that the left gets anything done. It's the only way they do it. You see, because legislatures and referendums, the people of the states generally vote all this stuff down, and then they come in with the courts. It's the only way anything happens. All these things that you talked about at the beginning would not have been possible without judicial overreach. And that's essentially the core of this second constitution. If the consequences of civil rights law have been as totalitarian as Caldwell says, why has the harassed majority not revolted? The short answer is they've tried. Caldwell identifies the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 as the moment when adherents of the old constitution fought back, and the next eight years is the period when their hopes were conclusively defeated. Reagan changed the country's political mood for a while, he laments, but left Its structure is untouched. This is exactly right. And why? Because the Straussians and the neocons were in charge. And the Straussians and the neocons didn't really want to take out the structure. They wanted to use the rhetoric to get power, and that's all they really cared about. You saw it with the Trump administration. You see it in Virginia right now. They don't want to take out the structure. It's fine. Don't gut it. Leave it because they're not really against it. Reagan promised to shrink government, roll back the Great Society, and end affirmative action. With the stroke of a pen, instead, the national debt tripled. The federal civil rights bureaucracy proved as impossible to abolish as the Department of Education. Voters favored lowering immigration and getting control of the border, and Reagan promised to do it, but the compromise bill passed in 1986, traded immediate amnesty for enforcement measures that never came. Reagan flung open the gates to immigration while uh, uh, proclaiming a determination to slam them shut, Caldwell observes. Almost all of Reaganism was like that. This is not just that, and why? I mean, the question becomes why, because the Straussians were in there, the neoconservatives were in there. The voters who might have revolted against this portrayal were, Caldwell argues, essentially bought off. Public and private debt rose dramatically in the 1980s, and much of that borrowed money ended up in the pockets of white baby boomers in the form of tax cuts and consumer credit. These are the same people whose status in the political order had been altered by the, for the worst by the Civil Rights Revolution, and this borrowed prosperity allowed them to think that the old and the new constitutions could coexist. That boomer lifestyle was also made possible by immigration, which Caldwell argues is another kind of debt. In exchange for cheap labor, now citizens must eventually pay in government services and burden infrastructure, as well as cultural friction. These debts are conveniently off-balance sheet can be easily ignored by those in positions in the social order. I'm sorry, his position in the social order makes immigration seem to them like an unmitigated boon. Demographics complicated this, the debate by making immigration what the spread of slavery in the Western territories had been before the Civil War. An issue that could be used by one side or the other to convince, oh, I'm sorry, to convive at a position of permanent political dominance. It was therefore inevitable that immigration would play a starring role in the 2016 election where partisans of the old constitution staged their last-ditch effort to elect a president who might succeed where Reagan failed. Caldwell ends book not by offering any solution, but by summarizing the impasse that developed by 2016. Democrats loyal to the polls' 1964 constitution could not acknowledge or even see that they owed their ascendancy to a rollback of the basic constitutional freedoms Americans cherish most. Republicans loyal to a pre-1964 constitution cannot acknowledge or even see that the only way back to the free country of their ideals was through the repeal of the civil rights laws. I mean, this is, this is radical to say this. It's radical to say this. But where is the problem in America in terms of what's happening with litigation? Well, you got to go to those laws. And can you make a case? And this is, I, I've had a, several people who are lawyers say, when you go to law school, you got to con law. One of your first things is to show how some of these laws could be considered constitutional when the arguments are pretty dubious. If the repeal of civil, rights, of civil rights law is indeed the only way back to the old constitution, then liberty is doomed because those laws will never be repealed. So now what? Some conservatives propose adopting civil rights law to their own ends. The lawsuit alleging that Harvard discriminates against Asian applicants is one example of this. Education expert Frederick M. Hess of the American Enterprise Institute has proposed busing the college bubble through through a disparate impact lawsuit seeking to invalidate college degree requirements for jobs where they aren't strictly necessary, the same way Griggs v. Duke Power Company invalidated intelligence tests. And that is an interesting case, and I get into that, by the way, in my American Constitutions class at McClanahan Academy. While conservatives are coming up with clever lawsuits like Hess's, the left has their own ideas for what should come next in the ongoing evolution of civil rights. Professor Ibram X. Kindy of American University, a National Book Award winner and Guggenheim Fellow, was invited by Political magazine to participate in its September-October 2019 symposium feature 99 Ways to Fix American Politics. He proposed an anti-racist constitutional amendment that would make unconstitutional racial inequity over a certain threshold and also establish a Department of Anti-Racism comprised of formally trained experts on racism. The DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure that they won't yield racial inequality, monitor those policies, investigate private racist policies, when racial inequality services, and monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. I mean, this thought bubble appeared too late to be included in Caldwell's book, but it is a perfect encapsulation of its of his argument that once you make the elimination of of bias your highest goal, there's no violation of liberty you cannot justify. Right? I mean This Caldwell book is earth-shattering, again, because essentially what he's doing is regurgitating the arguments from the 50s and 60s. But he's saying maybe these things actually had merit. Maybe these people were actually right, and what are we going to do about it? This is why when I say, and I've said it on this podcast many times, you can't trust the Straussians and the neocons, because these are the people that gave us all the nonsense in the Reagan years that caused the codification, solidification solidification of all of this stuff, right? I mean, it's there because these people allowed it to exist. They didn't undo any of it. The Republican Party is always the stupid party. They don't undo anything that's dangerous and destructive to the original Constitution. They don't care about it. Kendi's proposal, though ambitious, is not too far off the reservation. Ivy League law professors Catherine McKinnon and Kimberly Crenshaw recently proposed their own equality amendment that would write into the Constitution that equality of rights shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Such an amendment or a Supreme Court decision enacting the same protections, extrapolating them from existing laws, would massively aggravate the political crisis the age of entitlement describes. It was a mere six years between the publication of Reflections on the Revolution in Europe and Angela Merkel's fateful We Can Do This, which inaugurated the 2015 refugee crisis and made all the problems that Caldwell has written about much worse. It would be further confirmation of his his work, but a disaster for the Republic if this book were to have a similar sequel. Right. But people have been predicting this since the 1950s and 60s. So... Here we are. I mean, I think this is correct. We do have an unwritten constitution. It is the progressive constitution. They don't care about the written constitution. They never have, and they don't care if they abuse it because it doesn't matter. And they're creating their entirely new constitution out of thin air through the courts, through the common law, through case law. This is what they're doing. This is what I've said in this podcast many times. It is the way the left has to operate because they can't do it any other way all right so interesting book you should you should certainly get it um, I like this review I think it was a, a very good review of this particular book and I'll see you next time with the Brian McClanahan show see you then